0: So we are in Judges, and we finished chapter 7, and since I've been gone for a while, and I figure you've probably forgotten everything I said in the meantime, to go over it quickly, we are in Gideon, and I've got a map up on the screen behind me that shows the events of Gideon's routing of the Midianites. And what happens, of course, is the Midianites are oppressing Israel. And the reason for that is, of course, because Israel has gone off and followed other gods and quit following Jehovah. So God withdrew his protection, and the Midianites would come in and occupy the area of the Jezreel valley, which of course is the valley that goes from southeast to northwest across the top of Israel. And as we said at the time, it's flat country, which is ideal for mounted warfare, whether the mounted warfare is on camels or the mounted warfare is on chariots. So that's, for example, where the battle with Sisera takes place. So anyway, the Midianites are camped in Jezreel. Gideon gets a call from the angel of the Lord, almighty man of valor, destroys his father's oxen with which he's plowing, uses them for a sacrifice, destroys the altar of Baal, and sends out a call to all the people of Israel, actually the people of northern Israel, as we'll find out today. He really only calls the northern tribes. You have the famous incident where he's putting out a fleece that's alternatively either soaked or not soaked differentially to the ground. Let's Sitting on the ground and the ground would be soaked and the fleece would be dry and then vice versa. And as I said at the time, my personal opinion is the reason for that is to authenticate his calling with the troops he's gathered seeing as how they haven't been terribly valorous running these guys off up until now, you can sort of imagine that if somebody stands up and says, the Lord's told me to call all you people and drive the Midianites out, that there would need to be some authentication before they took up that challenge. So anyway, we had the bit with the fleece, and then there were too many men for God's liking, and so what God did is put out a little test. He had everybody go down and get a drink of water. And those who picked the water up in their hands, as opposed to those who stuck their face in the pool, He took the former and left the latter, because the former were fewer. There were only 300. And as people are fond of saying, because Christian pastors say it all the time, God was looking for the most alert people, you know, the ones that picked the water up and were looking around as they were drinking. There may be something to that, but my perspective is he just took the smaller group, whichever one that happened to be, because he wanted to weed out most of the army to preclude any thoughts that Israel had done this on their own. So he gets himself down to 300 guys, or God gets him down to 300 guys, and then he sets up the deal where he listens at the enemy camp and the enemy has this vision that further encourages him so then he gets his guys and he has them take torches and shofars and put the torches up in a jar so they don't shine and surround the camp and at the signal they break the jars i don't know why they break the jars i would think you just take your torch out of the jar and wave it around. And, you know, maybe breaking the jars is more dramatic, I don't know. Perfectly good crockery and they, for whatever reason decided to break it up. And what they did then is so panic among the Midianites, and the Midianites started fighting among themselves. And we're going to find out today that there were 120,000 Midianites. So he's routed 120,000 of them with his 300 guys. And then once they're routed and moving out, he sends to have the fords across the Jordan secured so that they can't get away. He bottles them up on the entrance to the Jezreel Valley there, and they proceed to slaughter most of them. 10,000 of them, however, are going to get away. So what we're going to be on today is the pursuit of those 10,000. The other thing that happens is not his 300, but the other pursuing troops capture the two kings of the Midianite, and they slaughter them and bring their heads back to Gideon. We're now down to uh, chapter 8, so Judges chapter 8. The men of Ephraim said to him, what is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely and i got no idea they are talking as if he hadn't called them and that may be the case i, I don't know the answer to that he seems to have called the northern tribes and they've got their noses bent out of shape because they were not involved in the main battle Ephraim is in the hill country south of the valley of astralon and and the Midianites oppressing the Israelites is something that happens periodically. So I'm not entirely sure why they're grumpy about not being called, seeing as how they weren't doing anything anyway. But anyway, they are grumpy. And it may be a simple matter of, well, we're not going to start a war, but we've got a war and it looks like you're winning, so why didn't you involve us? This is speculation on my part. Scripture is silent. If Gideon had gotten his, took us, handed to him, and had lost, I don't think Ephraim would have said a word. But you never know. So we're all the way down to verse 2. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim greater than the grape harvest of Abiezar? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian or En Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? And their anger against him subsided when he said this. So basically he butters them up and flatters them and sort of assuages their hurt feeling. and everything's okay now. but it sort of feels to me like, given that you've got a successful operation, Why wasn't I involved, kind of thing. Verse 4. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So Gideon and his original band of 300 is going after the Midianites, which sort of begs the question, if Ephraim is so bent out of shape because they didn't get in on this battle, why isn't Ephraim involved in the pursuit. It sort of rings Monday morning quarterbacky kind of thing to me. So anyway, Gideon and his 300 cross the Jordan and head after the rest of them. Verse 5. Uh, let me actually get a different map up here. This shows the pursuit and start at the middle of the map where the Ephraimites seize the fords of the Jordan. So they're coming from Shechem, Tirzah, and Shiloh, which is in the central ridge, and they're coming down to the Jordan Valley so as to prevent the escape of the Midianites. And as we'll find out in just a minute, they get all but 10,000 of them. So they slaughter over 100,000 Midianites, all concerned, not just Ephraim, because remember, the Midianites fell to quarreling among themselves the confusion and so forth in the camp caused them to fight among themselves and that I am suspecting probably contributed a lot to the destruction so anyway Gideon crosses over and he comes to Sukkot so verse 5 so he said to the men of Sukkot please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me for they are exhausted and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna the kings of Midian. And the officials of Sukkot said, are the hands of Zebo and solomon already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So what they're saying is, uh, you got 300 guys and you're going after an army of 10,000 or more. Uh, we aren't terribly confident that you're going to be able to succeed here. So, if we help you and you don't succeed, the Midianites are really going to be chapped with us. So that's the deal. If you cut off their hands, and if you brought their hands back, that we know that you are victorious. That's the sense of that phrase. So verse 7. So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. In other words, I am going to come back and I'm going to be the one that's upset. So at this point, depending on the outcome of the battle, somebody is going to be upset with you. And you're sort of betting that I'm not going to be able to do it. So you're betting on not making the Midianites upset with me, and I'm telling you, you've made me upset, so after I've beaten them, I'm coming back and I'm gonna deal with you. They're afraid to do the right thing because they might tick off the local hegemon. Remember, the deal here is the Midianites go through there and cross over into the Jezreel Valley every year in order to get their share, quote unquote, of the harvest. So it is, in fact, the case that the Midianites travel through there back and forth with an army every year. So if the men of Sukkot help Gideon and his army, and they don't succeed, then the Midianites, the next time they come through, might not go to the Jezreel Valley. They may stop short and deal with Sukkot. So they're afraid. So rather than help fellow Israelites out, they give them this snarky answer comment was it reminds you of high noon and any number of other westerns and I agree with that. So verse 8 now and from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way and the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sukkoth had answered and he said to the men of Penuel when I come again in peace I will break down this tower. So he starts off grumpy with Sukkoth by the time he gets to Penuel, he's really ticked. Of course, they're hungry, but he's had time to think about it. He's less Sukkot, and he's sort of got a slow burn going, and he gets to the next town and gets the same answer, and at this point, his slow burn turns into a raging fire. He is really ticked. So what he promises to do to Penuel is worse than what he promised to do to Sukkot. Verse 10, Now Ziba and Zalmuna were in Karkor with their army about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the East, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. So my numbers that I gave earlier were a little bit off. I was thinking 10,000, it's 15,000 that he's going after, not 10,000. And rather than the total army having been 120,000, it was 120,000 that were destroyed. So the whole army was 135,000. Verse 11. And Gideon went up by way of the tent dwellers east of Nobah and Jogbeha and attacked the army for the army felt secure. So what's happened is the army has fled from up here at Endor where the original engagement took place. They have fled all the way down to Jogdeha. They have fled from the battle, and they are also tired. So what they've done is they think they have outrun their pursuit, and they have gotten together in a group and are setting up a camp of some sort so they can rest and get something to eat. And and what it says here is they felt secure. In other words, they figured, okay, we are out of that place and beyond pursuit. You're talking 60 to 70 miles, so you're talking three to four days easily. So I'm in verse 12. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them, and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. This is 300 guys, remember? Now, one of the things that I find fascinating, I don't know whether you remember Matthew gave a sermon probably two or three months ago. And one of the things that he mentioned is Cortes. Those of you who remember your history, was a Spanish conquistador who landed in Central America and destroyed the Aztecs' empire. But the point is, they are a major empire. And he's got a ship full of Spanish soldiers with muskets. So the idea of them from a military perspective, taking out the empire, which they did, is absurd. And the point Matthew was making is these were Christians coming up against a pagan empire. That God was with them, quote unquote, and they were able to spiritually defeat them, which preceded then the physical destruction. Even with muskets you're not talking high rate of fire weaponry and they would go through them like crap through a goose and they couldn't be stopped matthew's point was this was spiritual not physical what military people know is once you have won a battle you are not finished what you have to do is you have to pursue and keep going until you have destroyed the enemy. Because what will happen is they will get out of your range and they will gather up and reorganize and get set up and and come back after you. So these 15,000, when they say they felt secure, I am very much believing that they were reorganizing, they were getting their commanders back into order, they were getting themselves reset up, So these are not fleeing troops. These are troops that have gotten ahead and have settled and are reorganizing themselves. So it is not the case that he is continuing to chase these people and killing them one at a time. Stragglers fall back and so forth, and you can pick them off. No, this is the group of 15,000 that has coalesced that he's taking on. Uh, Where am I here? Maybe thirteen? Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Harris, and he captured a young man of Sukkoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Sukkoth. Seventy-seven men. So this guy's ratting out the leadership of the town of Sukkoth. Seventy-seven men. And he came to the men of Sukkoth and said, Behold, Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are so exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Sukkot a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. So he was somewhat more upset with Penuel than he was with Sukkot. Sukkot was sort of the first one he ran into, and... They ticked him off, and I think he was doing a slow burn. So by the time he got to Penuel, when they got the same response, he was really upset. Now, what I don't know is who is in Penuel. It is in either Gad or Reuben. So it may be Gadites, it may be Reubenites. It's also possible that it could be remnants of... The tribes that were there before the Israelites got there. Because a couple of things. Thing one is Moses did not tell them to destroy all of the pre-existing people on the east side of the Jordan. He told them to destroy everybody on the west side of the Jordan, the Canaanites. Now, Moses, when he came up the east side of the Jordan went to war against Sihon and Og, So he goes to war against them and he conquers that territory. I don't remember right off the top of my head whether he destroyed everybody or whether you've still got large remnants of that population in the area. So it isn't clear to me, at least on the surface, who lives in Penuel. So it may be that Sukkot were Israelites and Penuel was not necessarily Israelite all speculation don't know the answer to that I'm just sort of giving you all the possibilities so I'm at 18 now then he said to Ziba and Zalmunna where are the men whom you killed at Tabor they answered as you are so were they every one of them resembled the son of a king so Gideon says you killed a bunch of men at Tabor the kings answered These were mighty men, just like you. And he said, Gideon, and he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he sent to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. What's going on there is Ziba and Zalmunna killed Gideon's kin. Gideon is then the avenger of blood. And so he asked these guys, what happened to my relatives? And they said, we killed them. And he says, you're going to be sorry you did that. Because if you hadn't done that, I wouldn't kill you now, but now I will. So then he gets his eldest son and he says, all right, you're the firstborn, my firstborn. What I want you to do now is step up and execute the sentence that I have passed on these. The young man faced with his first possibility of killing somebody and not in the heat of battle. That's key. If he had been in a battle where he was defending himself and had killed someone that's a much easier task than killing someone who is just standing there defenseless that's very difficult to do and so he wasn't up to the job very understandable and i'm not in any way casting aspersions on it because it, doing that is very difficult especially the first time it happens so Gideon then goes ahead and executes the sentence so 21 then Zeba and Zalmunna said rise yourself and fall upon us for as the man is so is his strength and Gideon rose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels the crescent ornaments i don't know what the religious significance is but most people have seen them And unfortunately now they're mixed up with this long because they've been in that area for a long time. So it's an ornament representing a crescent moon. Obviously would have had a longer chain to go around a camel. But basically it's a decoration. So it would have obviously been made of some kind of precious metal. I don't know what they're typically made of, but you still see them today. The point is it's, valuable metal and they took it as part of their spoil so all the way down to verse 22 then the men of Israel said to Gideon rule over us you and your son and your grandson also for you have saved us from the hand of Midian so the idea is they want him to become a noble in the way that most nobles become nobles rent a war and people will follow you Gideon said to them I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So far, so good. You need to be careful about this, because Israel extends from Judah in the south all the way up to Dan in the north. So rule over us probably doesn't include most of Israel. So he would have been, if you will, a local king, just in the area around Manasseh and Jezreel, which would have been a big deal, don't get me wrong. But we'll see, he only goes down as far as Shechem. So Ephraim, Manasseh, and then what will later become the northern tribes or the nation of Israel. And notice that Judah isn't involved in this as far as we know. Doesn't go any farther south than Ephraim. So anyway, they're asking him to rule over them. And as those of you who remember your American history, there was a significant faction that wanted George Washington to become king. And George Washington turned down the job. He could have had it if he'd wanted it. And in fact, uh, King George said for someone to have that kind of power and give it up voluntarily, he's... An amazing man the idea of turning down being king is a big deal however 24 and Gideon said to them let me make a request of you every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil for they had golden earrings because there were Ishmaelites so the Ishmaelites had golden earrings they went through and plundered the dead and took their golden earrings And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, beside the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and beside the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Oprah, And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So what he does is he makes himself a monument. I don't know that he intended originally to have it be an idol. It may have simply been a monument, at least in his mind. Because remember earlier he says, God's going to rule over you, not me. So he puts up this ephod. And I don't know exactly what that is, but it then becomes an object of worship. So in that sense, it becomes a snare both to him, his family, and the rest of Israel. 28. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. So that's sort of the end of the military chunk of this. We'll finish the chapter because what we see is Gideon going astray. The first thing that he does is he gets his chunk of the spoil, 70 pounds of gold, which is a lot. And so what he does is, of course, he sets up a monument. At a thousand dollars an ounce, you have 70 times 12 times a thousand, because gold is measured in Troy ounces. You've heard that one. Which weighs more, a pound of feathers or a pound of gold? A pound of feathers weighs more than a pound of gold. Because gold is measured in troy ounces, and feathers are measured in alvo de ounces. It's obviously a trick question, but no, they do not weigh the same. And I think there's 12 troy ounces to a pound, and 16 standard ounces to a pound. So anyway, the point is, he has come out of this deal a very wealthy man. And what he proceeds to do is buy himself wives, he will wind up having something on the order of 70 sons. So 29. Jerobal, and Jerobal is Gideon, because remember when the angel of the Lord called him out of the winepress where he was threshing grain, he changed his name to Jerobal. So Jerobal is Gideon. Jerobal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring for he had many wives. 31. Not being satisfied with that, he also has a concubine. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son. And he called his name Abimelech, which means my father is the king. So you have a concubine, and then you have a whole stable of wives, and 70 sons by the wives plus one, by the concubine. I believe that's how the count should go. A wife and a concubine are two different things. A wife has status, so her children can inherit. She has legal rights. Very different status than a concubine. A concubine is, I'd want to say some floozy you picked up, but it's more serious than that because you can have concubines as part of your permanent stable. So it's not the case that a concubine is somebody you pick up on the corner of Colfax. She is also someone who is a stable part of your household, but she doesn't have the same status as a wife. Go back to Jacob. He's got two wives, Rachel and Leah. He's also got two concubines who are Bilhah and Zilpah. They are slaves of... Rachel and Leah. And so Rachel and Leah then take their slaves and say, All right, you go sleep with Jacob and we'll get some more kids here. They are eventually referred to as wives. So when you get down to the point where he is in Israel and has gone down to Hebron, where Rachel dies on the way, after that they're referred to as wives. But initially, They have sort of the same status as Hagar, who was an Egyptian slave. And Sarah finally has it up to here with her and just kicks her out of the camp. She has no real formal status. So wives and concubines are very different. This is going to present a problem, naturally. It always does. So verse 32. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father. At Oprah of the Abiezrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Balbareth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side, and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerobal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good he had done to Israel. It's, it's totally human. What have you done for me lately? human gratitude is nothing to depend on so as we're going to see in the next chapter they conspire to murder all of Gideon's sons and install Abimelech as their king so you've got this monument that he set up this this ephod i'm not sure what he thought it was going to be but it turns out to be a place of worship and turns out to be a snare He violates Moses' instructions in the Torah when he says, if you have a king, don't take too many wives on. Well, I don't know how many wives he took on, but 70 kids is more than one or two. So he got very rich off of this and that's how he spent his money.